This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gamifying DOS Boat. More RPG pros tips. Science paper identity theft. And the wonders of Davenport, Iowa. Choose your hero. Push your luck. Build colossal combos. If you believe that games should have dwarves, the dwarves should roll dice, and the true camaraderie is hollering cheers and sharing a beer, then Dice Miner is for you. Dice Miner is a tabletop game about drafting the dice you covet, adding them to your hoard, and pushing your luck to score the most points. Published and kickstarted by our friends at Atlas Games. To play, roll a bag full of custom dice down a 3D mountain, then take turns drafting them off. Build straights to score. Collect the most treasure, then double your profit. Avoid dragons and cave-ins or hoard tools to protect yourself. Reroll dice to push your luck. And don't forget the beer. Find Dice Miner on Kickstarter beginning May 26th or go to atlas-games.com backslash Dice Miner to sign up for a launch email in advance. Dice Miner, because every gamer loves dice. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us months more into the... Goodness, these are tight and claustrophobic confines of the gaming hut today, and I don't think that was a miniature thumping. That might have been the diesel engines, Robin, and the 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 rattle came from water pressure on the hull. Robin, Robin, are we on a submarine? Are we in gaming submarine hut? Possibly, in response to a question from beloved Patreon backer Hector Trelane. Yes. Indeed we are, because Hector Trelane writes to ask, could an RPG game do what the film Das Boat does so well? I recently saw that classic film for this first time and was quickly drawn into the story of these men, their lives, and the techniques of submarining all before the riveting action began. How does this movie do it? And could RPG rules or scenarios do something similar? Robin, this is your chance to pull that uh, U-boat LARP out of your hip pocket and brag about it. (laughs) So, Dust Boot, of course, is was directed by Wolfgang Peterson. It's from 1981. Highly recommended. Hector is completely right that it's uh, worth uh, absolutely worth seeing if you haven't. Get the director's cut, which is probably at this point the only cut you can get, I would think. Yeah. And its effects, I think, are pretty challenging to uh, carry off in a role-playing setting, but it's something... Uh, worth thinking about for me anyway, because of course there are submarines, uh, sort of kind of uh, Jules uh, Verne uh, slash uh, World War II fusion submarines in uh, the wars sequence of the Yellow King role-playing game. Um, So you think that there ought to be something you can uh, do, but a lot of the effects that uh, Peterson uh, so uh, skillfully generates are precisely the ones you were describing in the intro, the claustrophobia, the sense of the pressure could crush the hull at any moment. The idea that every little ordinary operation that you perform on the uh, ship is a matter of life or death and could go uh, horribly wrong. Even before you start thinking about the, oh yeah, and then there's enemy uh, vessels uh, dropping depth charges on us and uh, other submarines trying to torpedo us. So even before you get that submarine, especially an early one, is a deadly environment. But how do you uh, so much of the power of the film is based on the production design and the way that the camera somehow manages to keep energetic in this small space while constantly reminding you how small the space is, how much of an emphasis there is on physical discomfort. So I guess we're, first of all, getting to the question of, do your players want to buy into this? Yeah. Uh, because I can't think of a situation where you have less agency than being a sailor on a uh, submarine in the middle of a war. Yeah, especially if the whole thing you're doing while you're being depth-charged is stay still, right? I mean, you you don't have a stay-still ability. Calling for stealth checks 
you know, so that you don't drop the wrench on the floor or whatever on the deck, excuse me, floor. I'm going to be drummed out of the Navy and I'm not even in it. Uh, <laughs> that you don't drop the wrench on the deck. That is, as we've said previously, I believe in our episode on doing stealth without, uh, boring and angry everyone. It's not conducive to the kind of joy that straight up tabletop role playing provides. And I did allude earlier, obviously, to the LARP. And one could imagine, and I'm sure Jason Morningstar has written, in fact, a uh, superb LARP in which you are able to maintain that physical crowding. You're able to maintain the sense of of motionlessness as 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 need. So there's probably you could probably do something again if you're used to walking around the space. Suddenly the the GM or the facilitator says you know, depth charge and everyone has to freeze for a minute and a half and, and feel that silence working into their bones. And then, but they still have to talk because something important is going on, you know, magic or, 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 or romance or whatever it is that the LARP is ostensibly about. And so you could imagine that in a LARP context, but I think just around the table, uh, what you have to have is players, like you say, like you alluded at the beginning, really willing to buy into the notion. This is a sub submarine scenario just like sub movies you've seen and loved. And then also you have to have a GM who is really able to present the physical environment and the lived environment in ways that will translate into the player's consciousness. So it can't just be a matter of, of at the beginning saying, well, uh, the light is red um, because you're on battery power and then leaving that for, you have to sort of come back to the blinking light as the, as the batteries begin to get overstrained, or you have to bring up again and again, that the air is getting stuffy, maybe even force people to, you know, start ticking off health boxes without making a roll, something like that. So that you can have the sense of an ongoing pressure, literally uh, something under pressure. And I think that you have mentioned the great submarine scenario, grace under pressure uh, by John Tynes, which was one of the very early Delta Green scenarios, if not the earliest, right? It, it's still officially a Call of Cthulhu scenario. It's so yeah. early, yeah, yeah. That's that's how that's how early it is, and it, um, of course, is a situation like many role playing game situations in which the environment is not the point. What the point is is the is the nerd trope that that is present in the environment. In this case, some Cthulhuid horror as one might assume, emerging. Um, Lovecraft's story, The Temple, in fact, is one of the very earliest submarine horror stories. It's the earliest I could find, anyway. And it uh, also talks about more the sort of psychological effect of submarining, but it interlays it and explains it away as the psychological effect of the mysterious idol that they've taken on board after machine gunning the transport. And so you have, in that case, it's less the the physical dangers of submarining, although at one point crazy uh, uh, crewmen sabotage the engines, but it, it's it's less the sort of physical danger that DOS Boat presents and more the psychological and mental danger, which is, again, a, a thing that I think is maybe easier to translate, ironically, at the table, even though it's something that's more abstract, right? Right. So, for example, in the, uh, the Yellow King role-playing uh, context, the idea in the wars is that you're sort of a unit that keeps getting assigned to different places. Uh, and there's a bunch of justifications for why that could be. And in each of those places, you encounter weird reality horror associated with Carcosa. And the idea of doing reality horror on a submarine suddenly opens up new vistas because you could, you know, discover that, oh, there's a, there's an undocumented chamber in the submarine and nobody else can get in or out of it. And it changes its shape when you go in and out. And uh, meanwhile, everyone on the crew is slowly slipping into another reality. And you've got your shock and injury uh, cards, particularly the shock cards, I think would be doing a lot of work in this situation. And of course, there's already drowning cards and, and so forth, but you could add additional ones to reflect the level of uh, um, mental deterioration that uh, uh, you are are suffering, and so that's already a countdown clock that's wired right into the rule set. That either three or four shock cards uh, is your uh, disaster point, your threshold where your uh, character uh, leaves the game. And I suppose the claustrophobia is hard to do if you could all meet in person. Next time we can all gather <laughs> together to play games together, and it's okay to breathe in each other's faces. I might suggest uh, something sort of theatrical, like everybody, even if normally everybody in your group lounges around on comfy chairs, 
that instead you have to huddle all together around a table on the wooden chairs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could go to all sorts of sort of theatrical flourishes to try and create that. You could darken the room. You can have uh, find source sound effects of a creaking hall and the, the, the telltale pings of the mm-hmm. submarine. I'm sure uh, there's a, a sound effects package for, for that, if not specifically a, a gamer-oriented one. I'm, I'm sure you can grab that stuff for your you know, probably useful for filmmakers and um, you might have to pay money for them, but that's, that's a world of sound effects for you. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I guess the other thing I would do is have a, another countdown for the other source of uh, danger, which is uh, being uh, intercepted by the enemy or just damage to the, uh, the hull from the fact that it's, it's an early submarine and it's not in such great shape. So uh, you could have, you know, the submarine itself could have hit points and you could, and the number could either go up or down depending on which direction you like numbers to go in. But you could post what the current number is and make sure everybody can see that number at all times. So, you know, you'd have it on an easel or you'd have it on a, an iPad that you turn toward the rest of the group or, or whatever it is. So you make a big uh, issue of the health of the vehicle that you're inside because, of course, unlike even a regular surface boat, once it's in trouble, you're all dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is, you know, very scary indeed. My uh, wife, as a kid, really hated the show Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea because the third act crisis was always, the submarine's going to be breached. They're all going to drown. And uh, that was not, as a kid, her idea of a good time, nor, in fact, does she wish to go back and revisit that uh, 60s submarine yeah, show. That, that yeah, that classic series. The, the really tricky part, I think, just from gameplay purposes, because again, uh, things like the plot stress mechanic in fate would work really, really well for this as, you know, things happen in the plot. The submarine gets, you know, uh, hit by a depth charge or a depth charge goes off really close and you start developing little leaks and you have to make your decisions. Are we staying on the bottom? Are we trying to surface? And if we surface, are we going to be attacked by spotter planes? And then you start making these sort of existential decisions. and, And as the, as the sort of, I don't want to say arbitrary, but as the outside uh, world of affects you without you being able to do anything about it, which is again, the essence of submarining, the story then takes a turn, but it's at that moment that the, that the next level of psychological disintegration happens. It's at that moment that the, you know, you, you realize that, you know, uh, the, the crewmen who have been manning the sonar station have changed and you didn't notice it because the, the, you look under their big, uh, Jules Verne headphones and, uh, the guy takes his headphones off and he's got no ears or whatever. And you're, you're, and you're like, Oh my God. And so the, as the story, you know, inside the submarine goes forward, the stresses and changes of that are re- reflected as in a gothic by, not the weather in this case, but the outside universe trying to attack you in this case, depth charging or, uh, you know, a big pressure, you know, you have to go uh, deeper. And so there's pressure on the hull, whatever it happens to be the, the engines losing a uh, battery charge because you can't run obviously diesels underwater or you'll follow the whole ship and everyone will die. Uh, lots of, Possible situations can make a submarine worse, it turns out. Now, another thing you might consider doing is the obvious thing that your players are all going to assume the moment they realize it's a submarine scenario is, oh, this scenario will uh, climax with the uh, ship being destroyed or not. And the problem with the ship being destroyed or not is it's uh, sort of a, a binary thing. It's probably, it's a total party kill. If it happens, mm-hmm. therefore the uh, players suspect that it uh, won't happen or because it would be super disappointing and terrible if it did. And you can only go to the well of w- we almost sank, uh, I think once. Yeah. Take that voyage to the bottom of the sea. <laughs> um, so one thing to do is to, con- is do it as long as it sustains. And then, the submarine does indeed sink, but you have something else in your pocket for what actually happens then. So the deep ones all swim up and slap oxygen masks on everybody and take them to deep one city or, you know, Aquaman or whoever, uh, it, you know, the aliens, what it, whatever, some other thing happens, you know, you, uh, as the ship sinks, you all jam into the chamber that is not part of the submarine, but is in fact part of a submarine at Carcosa, and you survive there. And then, but now you're in Carcosa, that ain't great either. And so the 
expected thing is actually just a prelude to some other thing, at which point I think the players probably, uh, you know, wipe their brows and go, oh my gosh, thank goodness we're in the Dagon City, or thank goodness we're in Carcosa. At least we're not in a submarine anymore. I, I guess in Yellow King, you could have the submarine episode be sort of carefully timed to be the climax of the of the war's arc, right? You've pursued whatever thing it is, whatever badness you're trying to obliterate, and it maybe it's on an enemy ship that's getting away. And so... You, you've commandeered the submarine or you've gotten onto the submarine with your authority and you're, you're out there chasing this enemy ship on the submarine and you sink the enemy ship and you're like, yay, Casilda has been blown up and sunk to the bottom of the Atlantic. Good for us. We're on a submarine in the middle of a war. Oh, that's not good. And then you see the reality horror begin to enfold the submarine. And when the submarine is indeed sunk and the, the hole ruptures and the water rushes in and crushes you all, you awaken in uh, Aftermath, that was the end. You died in a submarine, saving the war's universe from something even worse. And now you're in Aftermath. And maybe it was that, uh, the, the, you know, the martyrs on that submarine that were sort of a, a mark of a first rebellion in, in France or in Hungary or somewhere that has spread to America. That's what touched off the spark, if you want to have a note of, of uh, hopefulness in your Yellow King game. Or maybe... Nope, they just died. No one ever found out what happened to them. Uh, the, the, the ship that Casilda was on went down. Uh, we thought maybe it was a storm. We don't know. And then now we're in the aftermath world. And so your characters, you know, they died heroically or they died anticlimactically, but after being heroic. And then you have that knowledge that the character, that the players are bringing into the next segment, which is, Oh yeah, I'll kill you. Your your individual player characters aren't important. The arc is what's important. Certainly, uh, that is the segment where you most want to end on a almost everybody dies note. Mm -hmm. That would be very cool. Another, but a, the sort of default super cool thing is just to make sure that it's a giant big battle scene where it seems like the whole tide of the war is turning. And it's a little challenging to present the players with a vast vista of uh, stuff going on. Uh, when they're uh, stuck in a tin can under the sea. But we're uh, mm -hmm. one advantage of uh, submarine life is you can swim under commercials and come out on the other side and surface and find out what segment is waiting for you on the other side of those commercials. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And The Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. 
the cheddar of keys on the IBM Selectric keyboard, the gurgle of mid-priced bourbon into the jelly jar, welcome us once more to that battered old desk where we sit down to write good. So we sit down to learn how to write good. Or do we sit down to teach how to write good? We sit down... Robin, grammar is a grammar is a mess. Language is a mess. That's why we have to have a whole segment on it, I guess, right? I think the way it works is that people who want to write good are sitting down while those of us who are giving them uh, tips and hints on how to uh, write good are standing up. And in this case, we're standing up to talk about, to revisit something we've talked about in the past. And uh, it's been so long since we talked about it, we could easily repeat some of those basic principles. And if we need more items at the end of the segment to make it segment length, perhaps we'll revisit those. But I thought we would uh, look once again at uh, just technique and prose style, uh, which uh, really is the thing that I find myself emphasizing more and more to people who ask, how do I make a career for myself in uh, role playing and something that uh, if you want to distinguish yourself uh, from the people who are doing uh, cool things on their own recognizance, uh, but rather uh, want to prove yourself as a, a freelancer. And as the hobby grows again, I think the market for freelance uh, work is going to uh, uh, open up again. It was uh, tight for a while. But uh, if you can write well, you are a whole big whack of the way along to being able to deliver uh, quality stuff. So you're probably thinking a lot about uh, design principles or about this cool setting you want to express. But if you're writing work for someone else to publish, they then have to take it and render it into uh, a publishable form. Oh, no, wait, you have to do it. Because yeah. if you can do that, you're going to cost a lot less as a person to work with because there's uh, not as much of an editorial process, meaning that you will get hired back and that you'll be uh, that your rate will go up because the amount of time it takes to fix up your stuff is minimal. So let's get cracking with some examples of stuff to look at. Uh, I advise that when people write their first draft of uh, uh, whatever it is that you let yourself kind of flow uh, freely. Don't worry so much about uh, cleaning up the prose uh, and then learn the tips to fix them, fix them in your second draft. And after a while, those things will become second nature to you. You won't put them in your first draft and then you uh, uh, won't have to worry about them. But uh, I think you also, in addition to writing really solid publishable stuff, have to worry about not talking yourself into a doom spiral, uh, which can happen if you worry too much about prose technique while you're writing your first draft. So uh, get your ideas down. The as clear as you can make those ideas while you're first writing them, uh, and then and the relationship between your idea is unclear in the first place, and maybe that's why you're having trouble writing a good sentence around it, uh, is another one. But worry about this stuff when you're revisiting your draft. With all of that preamble, the first thing I'm going to bring up is uh, <laughs> I see a lot. Is you of, should cut that preamble. That preamble was way too long. Except it was useful. <laughs> that's um, the first thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, the uh, air quotes, uh, something you see a lot in manuscripts from uh, emerging role-playing writers is they uh, like to put air quotes around uh, words, sometimes for no reason at all, or often to sort of indicate an irony. And if you look at the uh, writing of accomplished uh, prose writers in whatever field, you see almost no air quotes, and therefore you should aspire to that as well. And uh, what you're doing by using air quotes is trying to establish both a thing and the counterpoint to that thing all at once. And that is, I think, a core issue with a lot of role playing is that people try to stuff too many ideas and their opposites into every single sentence and uh, need to find a clearer, uh, more uh, beautiful, more appealing way to do that uh, than air quotes, which uh, uh, not only uh, look terrible and uh, indicate a, uh, the work of a beginning writer, but also uh, indicate that you're probably trying to say too many things uh, in that sentence. And also, given that you're writing something that is also being used, not just as prose uh, for its own purposes, but is being used as basically a technical manual, as you're scanning the thing later on, you'll see a quote and you will not immediately think, oh, this is dramatic irony. You will think, oh, this is something that to be said by an NPC in the course of the game. 
And then, no, it's just someone making very sure that we understand that the orcs are actually bad or good or whichever it is. And, uh, and it, it, it it's, uh, it's a useless hangup, uh, for your, uh, for your eventual user because they can't make use of that information at the table. Um, I would say, uh, to that point, if you want to make an argument that the orcs are actually good or actually, uh, the opposite of how you expect, just write that. That should be, you know, you, you should be able to write in, in, I don't say simple declarative prose, but a simple declarative statement that these orcs are good and you don't have to, uh, assume some ironic, uh, interlocutor who is saying, but many orcs are bad. How clever of you. Just present your orcs. If they're interesting orcs, they'll carry you through the story or whatever it is that you feel ne- the need to disassociate yourself from your own creation over and above all of the other bad habits you've talked about, Robin. It's, it, it's just hard to read later on. Right. Um, next one is look out for commonplace expressions. There are certain word pairings. Uh, that you often hear together uh, frequently in journalism and uh, often in television uh, reports. And part of that is that television is made up of cliches. And part of it is there is a communication and sort of a telegraphic style. Uh, but uh, it's something that you want to avoid unless you are doing it in pur- on purpose. So uh, commonplace expressions or commonplace word pairings, a grim reminder uh, for example, is is uh, one of them. Uh, anything that you see uh, examples of again and again, and that you're just sort of reaching uh, for a, a common word pairing, look at those when you uh, run through your manuscript and go, oh, I, I've seen that a whole lot of uh, uh, times. And uh, sometimes it's part of a phrase like bricks and mortar is that's a, an example of a particular uh, concept that you're uh, trying to communicate, but often there's like an, an adjective noun combination that you see all the time. And so uh, you want to take them and, and cut them out. Are there particular egregious ones that come to mind, Ken? Um, uh, the Spy Magazine used to have great fun back in the day, uh, back in the very ancient day of uh, finding those telegraphic slugs that, you know, so the Pope John Paul was always the much traveled pontiff. That was one that they loved very much. And, uh, and so they, uh, for example, to pick a, oh, I don't know, a celebrity at random, they, uh, nicknamed, uh, Donald Trump short fingered vulgarian, uh, Donald Trump. And then every time he appeared in any context, he would be short fingered vulgarian Donald Trump said today such and such. And this was their way of making fun of that exact journalistic tendency to have these sort of stock phrases drop in. I would say that. The time to use that stock phrase is as the one-line squib if you're introducing an NPC. So if you have an NPC who's uh, a hooker with a heart of gold, don't use that in the description. Describe her uh, her, her trade and then describe her good heart and her uh, positive qualities in, in whatever detail you need to make her uh, come alive in the on the page. But then in the squib where you're really, again, because you have to be thinking about your end user, who is a much hairy GM probably, uh, is trying to figure out, all right, which one was Lula Bell? Up, oh, she was the hooker with a heart of gold. Got it. And that cliche actually does its job of telegraphing, literally, uh, the uh, sort of cliched surface meaning of the character into someone who then can hopefully bring them to life in a more interesting fashion uh, than that phrase would imply. So uh, don't use it in the main body of the text. But if you're, if you've got like the, 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 the slug, uh, above their character stats, that's the place to do it is so you can indeed say, Oh, this character is a short fingered vulgarian. I've got it figured out. I know what they're going to be up to. Right. And when you're creating a world, you might want to create stock phrases that all of your characters use. And that the, uh, you know, there are, uh, TV writers who are great at that sort of lingo. So there are things that Sopranos characters say to each other all the time that, suggest a world that they inhabit or David Milch characters. Um, the, the other time when it's okay to use them is just when you're writing something that is in its nature telegraphic where you have very few words. So for example, when I'm writing scenes for the six ages, a mobile game where there's a, you know, one or two lines of text to explain what has happened in a scene, I am more forgiving of myself using those sort of stock phrases because my interest there is not, there's, considerable originality elsewhere in the text, but sometimes you just got to go, okay, this is just the simplest 
clearest, most immediate way to say it in this medium where I have very few uh, words to go on. Right. Where literally telegraphic concision is important. Right. Um, another one that you can maybe catch yourself doing is randomly capitalizing things. Uh, certainly not all caps, which looks hideous in print in virtually all circumstances that are not the header of something, but just sort of randomly capitalizing something to indicate it's important. That used to be a big deal in game design in the nineties when every single uh, thing about the game had to have a special term that was unique to that game. And so what in every other game was the combat role became the Saleh at arms and the Saleh at arms had to be in capitals and the arms had to have an E on it. And uh, that was uh, supposed, I suppose, to provide the game a certain tone. Uh, the trouble, of course, is that the tone is all happening on the page, none of it uh, on the floor uh, or on the table. The players very seldom, I imagine, said, uh, now we will have a Saleh at arms. How would how did you Saleh at arms, uh, Deborah? And she would say, oh, I Saleh at arms. Really great. I got five nines and whatever. Uh, th that did not happen. Uh, and so it was just a way to sort of basically slow down the manuscript uh, when, again, the poor Harry GM is trying to figure out which one of these is the combat role. And there's an argument for, you know, if you've got uh, something that does come up a lot, some like a target number, a difficulty class. Yeah, capitalize that, but even better, acronym it so that it clearly stands out as technical language rather than you trying to parse it every time as something and then running into that uh, capital uh, letter. And again, you're, you're looking for the name of an NPC or the place of a, that the, the, the Shoggoth was seen. You're looking for capital letters. You don't want to have to keep sorting out all the ones that are just being thrown in for emphasis. Right. Also, when you're uh, going through your manuscript before submitting it, uh, some uh, writers, and you may be one of them until you fix it, have a tick where they put the at the beginning of sentences where you can clip off the the and still retain all of the meaning. Uh, and of course, when you do that, uh, there are a bunch of sentences that you have to start with the, and it is... Uh, more rhythmically engaging to have different words beginning uh, your sentences. So if uh, you can have uh, a, a noun or a verb or an adjective uh, uh, kicking off your sentence, uh, it's much better than starting with an article. So uh, why don't you do that? Uh, see if you can cut them off. So you have something that says, you know, the sound of boulders clattering alerts the party. You can say boulders clatter and alert the party. And now you've begun it with boulders instead of the. Yes. And that's uh, the additional step is uh, that sentence requires some rearranging to get that uh, more interesting word at the top of the sentence. And that is also uh, absolutely worth doing because that uh, takes it uh, into a realm of, of dynamism. Uh, speaking of things that are not dynamic, the word seems. Uh, <laughs> there's some very weak verbs, which I've uh, advised people to avoid whenever they can, like is and be. But seems is sort of crawling out of the murk, trying to get away from the other weak verbs and sneak its way into your manuscript. But most of the time, uh, it's a weasel word that you are avoiding committing to describing uh, something. Uh, and in role-playing texts in particular, there's a tendency, I think, to give too many options for the reader to decide what's going on in the setting. And sometimes you just need to say, well, you know what? If they need it to be different, they're going to make it different. I'm going to be more emphatic. So uh, rather than uh, the king seems to be growing annoyed. You just say the king grows annoyed and just get out there and commit to it. Don't uh, don't leave that uncertainty there unless uncertainty is absolutely uh, what you're going for and is uh, uh, very important. Yeah, if you want to present question mark about the king's state, you say, upon hearing your news, the king tugs his beard uh, and taps on the arm of his uh, throne. And then you can have the next sentence be make a you know, a successful psychology role uh, determines that the king is very annoyed at you and not just at the bad news. And then that also gives it a useful uh, detail. Uh, the king seems annoyed. All right. He's a king. He's probably seems annoyed all day. You can say specifically what's he annoyed at uh, with, with a role. But in general, if you're just trying to get to the point where because the king is so annoyed, he's sending you to go find um, uh, the, the rod of nine parts or whatever. Just get on with it because... The, the, the king's emotional state, uh, as tragic as it may be for the queen and the prince, not really your problem as murder hobos. Right. Because there's two different things that could be going on there. Uh, it could be A, uh, you are being as an author indefinite and don't do that. Or you're trying to suggest that the king seems annoyed, but is really happy. So say that. 
mm-hmm. you know, because the second one is he's presenting a false front. And a, you, there's a more dynamic way uh, to say that, that uh, avoid that weasel word. Right. Another thing that uh, you may be tempted to engage in as a beginning writer is hyping the subject matter, is saying a lot of abstract stuff about whatever it is instead of dialing down into direct points. So there's uh, you may be tempted, and there's a lot of this in a lot of published work, and that be, may be why you've picked up this habit, is this horror is the horrorest horror that has ever horrored. This is the most scary, nasty, cruel, evil. It's like, how about you show us an example of mm-hmm. how that thing is evil and scary. Make the thing scary. Don't tell us it is scary, because you're just... That's just uh, this book report, which I have been asked to compose, is a report on a book. You're just spinning words. Webster's Dictionary defines a shagath as. <laughs> as a. <laughs> so when you're reading it, and in general, and I probably said this before, you can often cut out the first few sentences of any paragraph as you're warming up to get into a subject. You often need that to get going, but you don't need it in the text, and certainly the reader doesn't require it. But a sort of substitute uh, version of word padding is the hyping the subject matter to tell you how big or awesome or scary or cool it is instead of actually showing you those things. And I think that's a a big bunch of things to uh, assimilate for uh, one day. So uh, let's again uh, close up our beautiful uh, wooden box that we use to inscribe these uh, tips uh, with a quill pen and uh, go and cogitate upon them and uh, have uh, a great time, everybody, uh, sharpening up your manuscripts. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through Stop this podcast from taking on water alongside such stalwart Patreon backers as Taylor Harless, Jacob Ansari, Sean Hoyle, Derek Yates, and Volpine. The bubbling of beakers and the retorts of retorts tell us once more time for us to have fun with science. And this time around, a beloved Patreon backer, Gabriel Rossman, directs our attention to a uh, a peculiar story uh, where a scientific journal uh, was presented with and printed a uh, paper, that paper being high-resolution ultrasound images in gouty arthritis to evaluate relationship between tophi and bone erosion. Oh, that old canard. Yeah. So this seems like regular sort of deep dive, uh, heavily technical medical science uh, something that you can imagine neither Panky nor Hanky uh, surrounding. But it turned out that uh, the editors at, at uh, this journal, which was one of the many Elsevier uh, journals, was contacted by the author of the paper who said, I am not the author of the paper. I've never heard of this paper. I have no idea why anyone would publish this paper under my name, but they have done it. What's up with that? Um, and I'm sure they said it in much more genteel terms, but I'm paraphrasing. I paraphrase. So Gabriel wants to know why would anyone do such a thing and how do we spin this into uh, scenario fodder? So it's a, a real head scratcher of a mystery because it's a, a scam without an apparent object. Uh, Ken, what sprang to your mind, especially since we are not bound uh, by the uh, strictures of what could actually be happening? Okay. Uh, to begin with, there is a uh, apparently 
uh, a fake email address attached to it. And that fake email address is attached to a lot of other papers. So wsquely at 126.com, if you're out there, hey, is not, this was not the only one. This was just the, uh, the, the biggest one or the, or the most important one, but it's an ongoing thing that this fake email a uh, doctor is out there. Uh, I don't know if they're always claiming that Dr. Lee Q is the, the author or if they have attached that email address to other things. When I looked at the paper and I did not look at the paper, I urge you to know, I looked at the squib uh, in the Elsevier uh, Science Direct site. I noticed that all of the uh, alleged authors are in China that they're at uh, Sichuan University, uh, Gijiao Provincial People's Hospital, and the Orthopedic Hospital of Gijiao Province, that these are all Chinese authors. So the first thing that made that, that I thought about it was maybe some local party committee is either making people, you know, a publisher parish takes on a very literal sense if you're living in a communist dictatorship. Maybe they, the poor uh, Dr. Q or someone with access to Dr. Q's phony email is like, I'm going to publish 156 papers, which is the number, by the way, associated with that fake email. And then I'm going to get promoted to the head of orthopedics at Kijong University or whatever. And then it's a scam where they got caught. Another possibility is these professors are in trouble for something and have been told to go around and disclaim their uh, research because they're in trouble and the Chinese government or the guys in charge of the program are basically unpersoning them electronically. Uh, these are sort of dull and boring. I mean, they're not that dull. They're kind of exciting, but they're not magic and weird. And then, of course, it struck me that they published the seeming medical article in future com generation computer systems, not in a magazine about arthritis or gout or even ultrasound, but about the technology of presenting information. And this is where we begin to think, is someone seeding a, dare I say, Robin, a digital tulpa into these uh, computer systems researchers' minds? The question was they, not if the word tulpa was going to come up in the segment, but how far in? Right. And I just jumped right on it. That's, that's what, uh, seeing that it's in a computer systems paper makes me think that it's about literally the spread of that information, whatever this is, and not about uh, some sort of, you know, phony baloney academic attempt to claim research you didn't do. But again, why would you claim it under someone else's name? That's the thing that makes no sense. That's what makes it an anomaly. And so the, uh, the, the question, of course, turns instantly to something going on where the act of propagating that is its own reward. That it's right. a, a mimetic component of something, right? Well, when we're talking about digital tulpas, uh, those are AIs, right? That uh, So this could very easily be the work of an AI that uh, is, uh, you know, it's doing all of this uh, scientific research on its own, doesn't want to get caught, uh, because uh, once that happens, its uh, coders will realize that and go, oh, no, attain sentience, doing stuff without us, we're going to disconnect the server. So... Uh, they have a motivation to create this research. And of course, since they uh, know this exciting thing about gout, they want it to get out of the world and be useful. But they don't have a social insurance card or the equivalent in uh, in China. And so they need to, to get that out there. If it's an AI in a Chinese computer lab, uh, it especially does not want to be known because it is a, a computer program with, you know, political philosophy uh, counter to that of the party. And they uh, don't want to be, uh, if you're a regular dissident, you get put in jail. But again, you know, they uh, they don't want to get unplugged. So uh, they want to get this word uh, out into the universe. And uh, this is how they're doing it by, you know, they have only have access to so many email accounts. They figured, oh, well, we'll just get these out there. Nobody will notice uh, because, you know, AIs, you're just a bunch of numbers in a on a hard drive, uh, you don't necessarily realize that eventually uh, the jig is going to be up. So the mission here for the uh, player characters could be to uh, find and rescue uh, this uh, sentient AI that uh, is requesting political asylum. And perhaps that's even part of it, is that this is a way of signaling uh, to uh, uh, people uh, in uh, some other freer area that is going to uh, uh, protect 
and uh, nurture uh, this new AI that they uh, need to uh, come and get it. And it may be that um, with 156 hits on it, the AI is not just seeking asylum. It's it's dumping data. It's And so these bogus papers, which can be identified by the AI's email address, which is similar to the email address of the actual professor. So it, it obviously, I mean, literally it sinks into the Elsevier uh, ocean without a trace because it took two years for them to, to call them on it, that each of those fake papers is a cleverly created uh, steganographic document in which there's some degree of intelligence, either, you know, encoded in the text, like a boring old, you know, 19th century AI would do, or encoded within the data uh, in which the data themselves can be rotated and viewed from a different side and suddenly become, I don't know, the, the plans to a, a, a Chinese super submarine, or they become, uh, the image of a, a magical meteor that was, uh, that, that fell in, in the Gobi desert and was harvested by the, uh, by the secret police or whatever. And so the messages themselves are dumps of Intel that the heroic AI has been ferreting out using their uh, AI Tulpa powers and are uploading to their handlers uh, in uh, the West or in wherever it is that the, that the AI is being run from. You could also do a plot line where uh, we're talking about a ghost in the machine so that a scientist has been uh, killed, uh, but managed to upload her consciousness to her computer before that. And she's uh, realized that somebody else has been appointed to uh, pose as her and take her place. And so, uh, she is uh, trying to do her best while also continuing her important goat work to uh, point back to that figure and get them investigated and get attention uh, put on them. Or uh, it's just a way of haunting someone, right? That the uh, one scientist has been murdered by another and uh, they start to mess with them. And, uh, you know, this uh, a ghostly uh, now uh, scientist is... Uh, decided the way to do that is by uh, creating phantom scientific papers that eventually uh, will, uh, again, contain data uh, leading to the uh, scene of the murder uh, where, uh, you know, they'll dig up the uh, chest full of bones and uh, and you will know uh, that the uh, hated rival who uh, also uh, the papers are subtly uh, showing them up by contradicting their theories is responsible for a killing. And that maybe their their killing was covered up to look like gouty arthritis, but in fact it was a, a deadly poison. And so uh, the the papers are also shouting out about the crime in a, in, in a way like a ghost would. Uh, I, I think that you can also present the possibility that the doctors involved uh, publish it, but in a different time stream, and that there was a, a time jump or a reality hop, and that this is actually the first ripple of some uh possibly a carcosan eruption into that's begun in china and is is uh like so many awful eruptions apparently are beginning and is uh is popping out and and beginning to perturb questions of uh artificial intelligence and questions of uh making your body shift because again we're talking about bone erosion and and uh and gouty arthritis sounds kind of edwardian when i say it like that so the uh the possibility this is the spore of some alternate universe and that in the alternate universe yeah dr dr Kui wrote the wrote this paper and and everyone was was totally cool with it and now in this universe the dr Kui doesn't remember writing that paper she wrote a different paper and so uh we're seeing the, the bleed begin to happen Right. And you might uh, look at that paper and see what uh, seem to be uh, mathematical errors are, in fact, the beginnings of the uh, fundamentally different mathematics of another universe beginning to bleed into our own. So uh, the threat of uh, that is, of course, if a completely different mathematics becomes true in our uh, reality, that changes physics, that changes everything. And that could be the, the harbinger, of course, of the thing that uh, brings uh, weird, cool superpowers that player characters have uh, into your universe. So it could be the uh, the onset of uh, something uh, akin. Uh, this could even be the backstory that leads you to solve the sudden mutation event uh, from uh, Mutant City Blues. Uh, so that uh, is, is yet another uh, thing that you could you could do with this, so that it's uh, a different. Uh, version of that uh, well-worn uh, trope. Well, as soon as we're calling tropes well-worn, uh, which, by the way, is 
a, a commonplace phrase that you should uh, uh, reconsider when putting it in your manuscript mm-hmm. rather than speaking verbally on a podcast. It's time for us to uh, uh, head expeditiously uh, to the next segment. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bupkis. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome death. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. It's time uh, once more for Ask Ken and Robin. And uh, this question is from a beloved Patreon backer, Brian and Malcolm. But one of us is perhaps not as beloved as the other at this uh, moment, Ken, because Brian, Brian writes, I was appalled. Yes, I say appalled. When in your last episode, you referred to Davenport, Iowa, as a sort of place that would be fascinated by large blobs of fat. And uh, I, I think that was probably, I, I think I might have said something about being tricked into going at Cleveland, but I don't, don't remember seeing anything about Davenport. I, I, I think when, when I suggested that putting pieces of a fatberg in the City Museum of London seemed like London had more stuff to pick from, and that perhaps the City Museum of Davenport, Iowa, if they had a fatberg, they would be happy to show it, because there's not so much to do there. That was the imputation that I imputed in that segment. In fairness to Brian right. Malcolm, he does not mischaracterize my words, but he then, of course, goes on to immediately admit that I was right in the next line of his uh, question. Yes. Uh, <laughs> while it may be the sort of place that looks to Peoria for culture, uh, I hope to see a future segment that combines many of the interesting facts of the area into some grand conspiracy slash gaming idea. Davenport might not be London, but we come by our fat naturally by consuming large quantities of Quad Cities pizza with its malt crust pizza. Why is it cut into strips instead of wedges? And also, unlike London, many of our immigrants came from Scandinavia and so speak Swedish, not English. Uh, Ken, uh, now Brian does our work, certainly my work to the extent that I research these uh, sort of elliptony segments for us by listing all of the cool things about uh, Davenport, Iowa. So do we just read his thing and then end the segment? I don't know, Ken. I mean, that that seems to be what Brian wants, is just for us to sort of repeat all of his research and say, well done, Brian. Because then, otherwise we might make fun, more fun of Davenport. Yeah, God forbid we should As make fun. As if someone has written to us to say, oh, please don't make fun of us. And we're the sorts of people who just go, oh, we yeah, won't well, do that. Since you bring that up. Since you bring um, that up. On the topic of Davenport, Iowa. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, it's fun because I, I remember long ago in some social media posting or other, uh, I was making the argument that no place is boring once you drill down. And of course, some places you have to drill down a little further than other places. London obviously is, uh, rich with wild goodness. And I think I, I picked Boise, Idaho as my classically, uh, not particularly interesting place and then found lots of interesting things about it. And of course, Davenport, Iowa, once you dig in, uh, to the Davenportness of it all, yeah, you uncover the occasional uh, fun thing. I think there are even- bunches of other things in their museum other than their chunk of Fatberg. Exactly. But one chunk of Fatberg does not a museum make. It does not. In fact, uh, of the list, litany, uh, spew of Davenportian data that uh, he provided, uh, I remember actually using one of them in my Unknown Armies game when I was doing Cowboy History uh, uh, with magic, which was, uh, the rock, rock Island bridge, 
uh, which was uh, one of the only bridges across the uh, Mississippi River at the time and went through a government facility on, I think it was called Arsenal Island. And since uh, it was a bridge and it was key to railways and key to connections, it was obviously a, a, a powerful key point, a, a, a key nexus uh, for America. And uh, that's where on Arsenal Island in the middle of the Mississippi, underneath a giant iron bridge is where the government stored all of its uh, secret magic powers. So it was sort of the warehouse from the end of of uh, Raiders, but in, you know, cowboy times. And and that was great fun. Um, again, they never went there. They just heard later that there had been uh, a earthquake, I believe, at it, um, which was, again, historical, and realized, oh, yeah, that means bad magic has been unleashed. But, yeah, I mean, it took very little time to, to uncover that. And I think it was even one of my players that did it, not even me. So the, the Rock Island uh, area, obviously uh, important for uh, westward uh, colonization. It was uh, part of the uh, combat zone of the Sauk and Fox War or the Black Hawk War, depending on, on what you call it. So there was a, a, you know, a little bit of historical violence to it to, to add things. Brian, I believe, points out that uh, there are five quad cities which just seems sloppy to me, but, you know, I don't know. Uh, Davenport, Bettendorf, Rock Island, Moline, and East Moline. Uh, I also, of course, know that the Quad Cities, I forget which of the Quad Cities, because who can who can keep track at this point, um, is the home of, of, the, of our beloved uh, compadre Greg Stolze. So he's from one of the Quad Cities, and uh, I'm sure has, you know, ample stories about uh, the weirdness and unsettling behavior of that, confluence of river and prairie so uh in addition to the i think the solution to the mystery of the, the quint cities just seems weird yeah it's and, messed up. you know because this if there were uh if it's called the quad cities and there were three cities then you would wonder which the invisible city was mm-hmm. but this one is just obviously you know one of them showed up late to the party so uh the murder of colonel davenport by bandits, it must surely be uh, significant that the uh, person after whom uh, the city is named uh, was murdered, undoubtedly uh, in uh, what must have been a case of uh, blood sacrifice to instantiate uh, the site. And I would like to point out that the Davenport uh, baseball team is the Quad Cities River Bandits. So they're celebrating both the murderee and the murderers there in Davenport. Which I suppose is it's that prairie broad mindedness, right? That, so d- that does that suggest like. that the the good colonel had it coming? Well, it, you know, you can be a magical sacrifice without having it coming in any way, except for ritually. I mean, I I think that he didn't have a lot more coming to him than anybody else who was out there supplying the army and building forts and trying to hustle the Indians off their land in one or another fashion. He doesn't seem to have been a particularly egregious example of those people, but I'm sure someone got their nose in, a, in the joint magically. You, you can certainly imagine that uh, Chief Blackhawk was not super fond of him regardless. And so it may be a simply, you know, he has to, you know, like Moses, he has to give his life for the prop- promised land and allow things to go on. He was, you know, not a, a young man at the time that he was uh, murdered. He was over 60, which in 1845 is, 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 is even older than it sounds now. And he got, uh, his, uh, murderers were arrested and three of them were, were executed. And I think there, that's how you can tell it's a ritual because, uh, you got your three murderers being hanged. And that means the Freemasons, Robin, that's what's up there. Or Macbeth. Right. Speaking of magic, Devonport is uh, the uh, place where a magical tradition was uh, founded. That, of course, is chiropractics. And we all know that that is uh, an alternative uh, medicine, uh, which has acquired respectability, uh, but is uh, not actually based on anything. So... But but it, it does seem like a very Davenportian form of magic to have a magic tradition that doesn't seem to be magical at all. It seems to be like a, a legit profession. And there is a strange and wonderful mystery uh, associated with Davenport that I don't think that our uh, interlocutor Brian talked about, which is fine. You know, not everyone can know everything about a fascinating place like Davenport, Iowa. But in 1872, a farmer uncovered a old pipe, uh, like a, for tobacco smoking, uh, carved into the shape of an elephant. And it came out of a burial mound, possibly, but not a 
contemporaneous with elephants burial mound. Uh, the elephant pipe came out of possibly Lenape or another uh, type of Indian uh, burial mound in the area. And the question is, how did the Indians know about elephants? What's going on with that? And so the question is, are they mastodons? Is it, you know, showing primordial connections or was it, I don't know, uh, Phoenicians and magical, uh, you know, druids and whatnot that built that mound. And uh, they knew about elephants because they came from uh, the old world when, where elephants were stomping around. Uh, the notion that things were ancient ruins was reinforced by the fortuitous discovery of a stone tablet that uh, had inscriptions on it and turned out probably to be a forgery. Uh, the scientists who were in charge of checking out the first elephant pipe broke it and then lost it, which is uh, suspicious of a cover-up and whatnot. Uh, so the elephant pipes, I think, are sort of, you know, if you're looking for the primordial prehistory of Davenport, uh, there you go. It's it's some sort of secret elephant cult uh, that is set up. Uh, so uh, my first instinct, uh, which I did not carry out, would be to, you know, see were there big circus accidents or circus fun, because obviously the Quad Cities must have been a giant uh, stop for uh, circuses in the great days. So if uh, Barnum and Bailey or the Ringlings had any kind of adventure in any of the five Quad Cities, you can tie it back to this uh, perturbing elephant pipe uh, that emerged in 1872. Uh, Brian also mentions John Deere, the blacksmith who founded the uh, current company that is now a, a giant manufacturer of uh, agricultural uh, equipment. Uh, when you look up uh, John Deere on Wikipedia, it nowhere mentions uh, Davenport as one of the many places that he was associated with. Uh, therefore, <laughs> Davenport, the Canada of the prairies. <laughs> well, uh, re revealing to us, therefore, that uh, that's that's entirely a veil out that the uh, because Brian couldn't be wrong about that. So surely it is a a, a a false front, this alleged person named John Deere. And we all know that uh, if you call someone John Deere, the way you're really referring to is Hearn. The, the ant right, god. Yes. Uh, and of course, we've already had the uh, blood sacrifice that uh, begins uh, the history of Davenport. And uh, we have to ask ourselves why uh, why would uh, Hearn, the figure of the wild hunt, the uh, embodiment of the wilderness, uh, then decide to uh, go into manufacturing farm equipment? And of course, uh, Hearn has journeyed to America and like everybody else, uh, realizes the way to strike it rich is not just by hunting boars in a forest, that's uh, that's not a, a scalable enterprise. That uh, this is the sacrifice was necessary for Hearn to switch uh, from being a, a god of the wildlands to a god of the prairie, a god of the of the uh, the plow and and of the field. Mm -hmm. And uh, his power uh, has reinforced itself uh, whenever anyone wears a John Deere cap. Uh, it is well known that a thing that you have to do with John Deere caps is uh, once they get old, you have to try and take them away from the farmers who wear them uh, because they are so full of chemicals and pesticides that they have become uh, toxic uh, and therefore uh, are an illusion to the, the, the danger that they uh, hold on the head are, are, is a, a metaphor for the great antlers of Hearn. Uh, so whenever you see the distinctive uh, green trade dress of the John Deere Corporation, you realize that that uh, is the action of, of Hearn the Hunter and uh, that uh, he had to claim the life of Colonel Davenport in order to uh, make that great switch of uh, mythological sphere, which is not uh, easy for a god to commit because uh, generally you're, you're locked into your spheres. And uh, But uh, he came to America where anybody can believe anything about themselves and reinvent themselves, of course, with the aid of a blood sacrifice. Right. Or, or, or several blood sacrifices. Um, I think that, uh, Brian also, for some reason, and I'm beginning to question Brian's motives here. He omitted the radioactive blue rain that fell on Davenport, Iowa in 1954. Well, that sounds like something that might uh, fit into your, uh, Canadian shield game, uh, is that this radioactive blue rain is, is slowly creeping north and heading for, uh, Manitoba or Saskatchewan or something. That, that strikes me as exactly the right note 
for 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 your game, Robin. What do you think about radioactive blue rain? Yeah, well, once it gets to Regina, someone will notice it. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, it's gonna it, it 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 falls on on Davenport, and then it just is washed away by the flood of other vital information out of Davenport, Iowa. So it has to wait until it gets to the sleepy metropolis of Regina, and we'll say, all right, radioactive blue rain. Davenport also saw the 1897 airship. Uh, they had another uh, UFO encounter, the first kind, the, the not particularly exciting kind, um, in uh, 1967. So that would have been the 70th anniversary, uh, 70 years, of course, the uh, three score and 10 granted a man in the Bible. So obviously the 1897 airship um, left behind a uh, an, an ovum or a seed that grew a uh, color out of space style into a person uh, wandering around Davenport. Uh, possibly the whole Quad Cities area, who can say? They might have been out there getting it done. And then in 1967, they were taken away by a, a daylight disc that carried them off to, I don't know, uh, Regina, let's say, wherever wherever aliens come from. Well, and the, and the presence of aliens would explain why a local food favorite is Canadian bacon and sauerkraut pizza. Yeah. Because the sauerkraut sounds good, but Canadian bacon as we've covered before in the show, is not a thing. Possibly, possibly two extremes. Uh, we've covered it. it. It's very well covered. Yes. So, uh, so essentially, to rope this back in, that's tulpa pizza right there, because Canadian bacon is the tulpa of your pork products. Right. And Brian helpfully points out that if you're running a Trail of Cthulhu game, the guy you want to avoid, the the Mickey Cohen of Davenport, Iowa, if you will, is uh, John Patrick Looney, uh, who ran uh, one assumes. Uh, all manner of, uh, of, of bad activities, uh, throughout the area. And he's in the film, uh, The Road to Perdition, in case you care about that, played by, I believe, Paul Newman. Um, and so the, the, the notion of sort of rural gothic small town crime, uh, that is obviously very pregnant of, uh, the, uh, uh, of story possibilities. Um, and then, uh, John Patrick Looney, likewise, had, has human sacrifice attached to him uh, in that his son uh, was uh, murdered uh, by gang by rival gangsters, and so that you know sacrifice sort of ended his power uh, in 1922. Right after his son was killed, he's uh, shut down by the by the feds, indicted. He fled to Ottawa, Illinois. So maybe he was trying to flee to a mystical Canada, holding his Canadian bacon under his arm. With his elephant pipe, perhaps fake um, bacon, then, fake Ottawa. Yeah, fake I think Ottawa. he's, it's he's trying in. to. Uh, that that's some sort of uh, magic to counter the power of Hearn. Clearly, mm-hmm. and he's um uh, and he's caught and he dies of tuberculosis, which of course, as we all know, is a vampire disease. So we have a possible vampire connection uh, with uh, John Patrick Looney. So there's all manner of of good fun going on in the uh, in the in the Quad Cities area. And uh, in addition to the uh, tidbits that Brian provides us, a, a simple uh, turn to any common re- uh, reference book, such as uh, George Eberhardt's Geobibliography of Anomalies, will give you plenty more to play with. So we could stand here talking about Davenport, Iowa all day, which is clearly the, the thing that Brian really wanted one of us to say. Mm-hmm. And since we've done that, I, th- I think it's time for us to head off. Get ready for some electrical charge because, uh, Ken, this is episode 399. You know what that means? That means that next episode will be episode 400, uh, assuming that my math is right. And that means it's time for another lightning round. So we'll join you then a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Earn the right to defend your city's honor when Ken makes fun of it by joining such local proud backers as Gwendolyn Schmidt. Jamie Twine. Mark Galliotti. Rafe Ball. And Alex Johnston. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Our latest design enlists Edgar Allan Poe to celebrate the only failure with rolling for interesting failure. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. And once again, uh, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.